It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Smith rifles that one to Mims. And that's a foot race. He's going to win. Touchdown, Baylor. Denzel Mims with another monster score of 70 yards. Five straight games, Anthony, where he's got a touchdown catch of over 20. That's deflected. And picked up Mosey. He'll take it in. It's a pick six and a touchdown. Bell into the middle of that line. And it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder. 85 yards. There was contact with a quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know and what? it's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh, my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And it's Wednesday, which means it's time for Midweek with Manish. Manish Mehta covering the New York Jets for the New York Daily News. Manish, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to my exclusive interview with Jets first-round pick Mackay Becton yet, but I got to tell you, I think that I should be an honorary member of the Jets beat because I was the only one with the guts to ask Mackay Becton the tough questions, the questions that none of you will ask him, and I know that no matter what I say, I can't get you or Nimbly or any of the guys on the beat to ask him what we all really want to know, which is, when is he going to try New York pizza? <laughs> what was his response? He said he's planning on trying it ASAP, more or less. Whenever he gets to New York, I guess, which is the, probably the bigger question right now. Right, and as I said during the interview, I don't want Jets fans mad at me because I know that Makai's looking to keep his weight under control and he's on the Duke Manyweather diet and all that. But I told him, listen, there's going to be some cheat days. So when the opportunity arises for him to go off of his diet for a day or for a meal, told him to shoot me a text and I'll give him a couple of really awesome pizza places. But I will say, Manish, I thought he came off really, really well. He's not a huge talker, but he's definitely a kid who will tell you exactly what's on his mind. So should be fun for you and the rest of the guys to cover him on the beat for the next bunch of years, hopefully for the next 10 to 15 years, because I'm hoping that he's the answer to all of our prayers at left tackle. Certainly, he's going to be the answer to Le'Veon Bell's prayers because we know that he loves the pancake dudes and we know what a vicious force he is in the running game. So Le'Veon Bell must have been sitting at home draft night licking his chops. And now, perhaps... Adam Gase and the Jets can use Bell more to his strengths. I know you wrote about this in the Daily News, but I agree with you. I think that Gase using Bell more to his strengths, and what that means is tailoring the runs to what he's good at, which isn't inside zone, which is what everybody believes Gase is going to continue to run. It's not really Le'Veon Bell's game. And him lining Bell up not only as a running back out of the backfield to catch passes, but in the slot and as an actual wide receiver. There's a variety of different ways they can use him. I hope that Mekhi Becton's presence here helps them realize that they need to do this in order for the team to be successful in 2020. Well, look, Becton's immediate value will be in the run game because we know that that is his strength right now. Uh, he'll ultimately, I believe, be the left uh, tackle for Sam Darnold. Uh, we'll see if that happens in 2020. Uh, it might be safer to start him off on the right side, uh, but again, uh, you get him on the field first in practice whenever that begins and, and then make your determination whether you're going to have Becton on the right side, George Fan on the left, or vice versa. But certainly you can see on the tape that 
Becton can make an immediate impact in the ground game, which will obviously help out Le'Veon Bell and then by extension Sam Darnold and the rest of the offense. But uh, in terms of Le'Veon Bell's role in 2020, uh, his second and what I firmly believe will be his final season playing for Adam Gase uh, is a commitment. Uh, you know, is there going to be a true commitment? Uh, and in order for there to be a true commitment, there has to be a philosophical change on Gase's part because his offenses typically aren't tailored to uh, being run through, frankly, one running back. That that hasn't been the case. It's more of a spread-the-wealth uh, scheme, uh, both through the air and on the ground. And uh, yeah, I, I, for me, seeing is believing. I don't necessarily think right now in early May, that we're going to see a radical philosophical shift on Adam Gase's part. I think you're going to, frankly, see a lot of what you saw last year, which is uh, Le'Veon Bell uh, not being used like he was used in Pittsburgh. And uh, there was an example that really came to, to my mind right away, and it was an example five years ago in Philadelphia when Chip Kelly signed DeMarco Murray to a monster uh, free agent deal uh, and I'm not saying that DeMarco Murray and Le'Veon Bell have the exact same style because Le'Veon Bell has a unique style. Uh, but if you remember, uh, in DeMarco Murray's final season in Dallas, he led the NFL in rushing. He was a dominant force. Uh, that offense went through DeMarco Murray. And then when he came to Philadelphia, Chip Kelly ran DeMarco out of the shotgun. Uh, and it was very frustrating for uh, the fan base. It was frustrating for the team. And ultimately, the results showed that it was the wrong way to use DeMarco Murray. He had his worst season uh, since his rookie year, I believe. Sound familiar? It's very much like what happened with Le'Veon Bell last year. And then uh, after Chip Kelly was fired following that season, uh, the Eagles traded DeMarco Murray to Tennessee, and he revitalized his career, had a real, uh, a really solid year, I think 12, 1,300 yards in Tennessee, and looked uh, a lot more like the player he was in Dallas than that one season in Philadelphia. Now, Le'Veon Bell is not going to be traded, so it's not a one-and-done situation with the Jets, so he is going to have a second go-around with Adam Gase. But you'd like to see Gase use Bell like he was used more often uh, than not in Pittsburgh. Eye formation, power running, uh, not out of the gun. Uh, just looking at Le'Veon's last season in Pittsburgh, uh, more than 70% of their runs came with the quarterback under center, uh, whereas I think 45%, somewhere in that neighborhood of Le'Veon's runs last year came out of the shotgun. So a part of that has to be a commitment to putting Sam Darnold under center. Uh, that helps out play action. That helps out your passing game. Uh, it will also help out Le'Veon Bell. So there needs to be a philosophical shift there. I, I don't know if Adam Gase is going to do that. Uh, and anything Adam Gase says in, in May is largely irrelevant because uh, Adam Gase said that he was going to really look closely at Le'Veon Bell's runs that were successful in Pittsburgh a year ago at this time, last summer. And then after uh, Bell had a very unproductive season, the day after the season, uh, Adam Gase said the exact same thing that he had said during the summer, which is that he was going to look closely at the runs that were successful for Bell in Pittsburgh. So he just repeated himself. So anything that Adam Gase says right now, is largely meaningless when it comes to his usage and deployment and philosophy with Le'Veon Bell. I mean, you need to see that on the field when the games start and when it actually matters. Because as we've seen in the past, 
when it comes to Adam Gase, whether he's talking about Le'Veon Bell, Sam Darnold, anybody, you know, the words don't really matter. The actions will tell you what he's really thinking. I sure hope that he learns from his mistakes. He's a stubborn guy, so I'm hoping that he reflects, but this is a big part of the reason why I was nervous about him coming here because him getting a job right away instead of having to sit out and be humbled or even get bumped back down to offensive coordinator meant that he was going to think that his way works all the time. And the bottom line is you've got to tailor what you do to the talent that you have. It can't be all about your scheme. And the best example I can come up with for this is Pat Riley. If you remember, he was the head coach of the Showtime Lakers. They were this high-scoring, high-powered offense with Magic Johnson and Kareem and James Worthy. He got to the Knicks. He didn't have that kind of talent, so what did he do? He completely changed the way he coached the team. He made them a defensive-oriented team, and they became extremely successful. I think that's what the best coaches do. They figure out what they've got and then they scheme what they do to the talent that they have. Now, obviously, if you have a certain system that you like and you want to try and bring in players that fit that system best, that's one thing. But if you already have players here, you've got to do whatever it takes to get the most out of them, especially a player like Le'Veon Bell. And we both know, Manish, that they went out in the fourth round and they got LaMichael P. Ryan at number 120 overall. He'll come in here. He'll take some of the carries. That's not a bad thing because you don't want to wear Le'Veon Bell down throughout the course of the season, but ultimately you've got to make sure that a player like Le'Veon Bell, who is as gifted as he is, is put in the absolute best position to give you the maximum for your investment. In other words, to shine as bright as he possibly can. And I think that there's a lot that remains to be seen when it comes to that. One guy that could have helped is Matt Hennessy had the Jets drafted him. We talked last week about how Hennessy was somebody that could have been in play for the Jets at number 79 had he made it there. Instead, he got picked by the Falcons at 78. But according to some of your sources, Manish, it looks like Hennessy was never the target at number 79. It was Zuniga all along. Yeah, you know, I had actually had Hennessy in uh, my final seven-round mock draft, I believe, and I had him in multiple mock drafts because the Jets did like him. Obviously, they prioritized uh, Zuniga over him because uh, they were more than willing to trade down four spots from 79 to 83 with Denver, who actually wanted to move up for Hennessy, uh, you know, in the small world category, uh, Denver loses their center, Connor McGovern, to the Jets in free agency, and then uh, the Jets could have uh, returned the favor, if you will, by making this deal with Denver so they could get their new center of the future in Matt Hennessy. But the Falcons foiled that plan because they took Hennessy at number 78 right before the Jets were going to be on the clock. Uh, the deal was in place, it was all contingent upon Hennessy still being available, and then the Jets would have picked up another day three pick from the Broncos, but uh, Atlanta had other ideas. Uh, I still think, I mean, it, it's a moot point now, but I still think the Jets probably should have taken Hennessy, uh, uh, you know, about, what was it, nine, eight picks earlier. Uh, the Jets had that little window uh, where they uh, had two picks within uh, a 10-slot period, and I thought that they should have taken Hennessy. And it felt at the time of the draft that the Jets got too cute because they missed out on Hennessy at 79 when uh, what was actually happening was that they were positioning themselves to move out of that spot to pick an additional pick. It would have, uh, in hindsight, been uh, Joe Douglas's fourth trade of the draft. Uh, 
But instead, Denver did not get Hennessy. They stayed at 83. They took Lloyd Cushenberry, the center from LSU, who they hope will be their center of the future. Uh, it was an interesting three or four pick span because, if you remember, the Broncos actually went back-to-back, Glenn Bowden Jr., Brian Edwards at number 80 and 81. I thought the Jets would have been better served, frankly, to take either one of those guys, especially Bowden, as we spoke about, Scott, on the last podcast. But, uh, you know, if they had made that deal with Denver, they would have had Zaniga available at 83 uh, in addition to that uh, extra third-day uh, third pick. But it didn't happen. But I just thought it was interesting only because uh, they got their center of the future from Denver. They could have helped Denver out by getting uh, the Broncos their center of the future. And it ultimately ended up being a player that the Jets actually liked as well, but somebody that was coveted around the league because, uh, you know, as I've said in the past, the people that I spoke to around the league really liked Matt Hennessy. I mean, this is a player that uh, one general manager referred to as a stud to me. We'll find out. I suppose scheme matters, but a very you know, athletic player, uh, a heady player, great work ethic, really, I think, a foundation piece, and a guy I think would have fit in really well with the Jets uh, if they decide to go in that direction. If the Jets really wanted Hennessy, though, they could have had him at 68, which is why I was suspicious that he was the target at 79. But if they'd taken him at 68, Manish, they wouldn't have been able to get Ashton Davis, the safety out of Cal, the guy that many believe is eventually going to take over for Marcus May. And you threw a little bit of gasoline on that fire this week in the Daily News, talking about how the Jets had engaged in trade talks for Marcus May. Let's remember, Marcus May is 27, he's been often injured, and he only has one year left on his deal, so it would make sense if the Jets would consider trading him. There's been a lot of talk back and forth online about what you actually meant by this, but I thought your article was pretty clear. The Jets weren't shopping Marcus May. In fact, what they were doing was engaging in trade talks with teams that called to ask about him no differently than they did with Jamal Adams. The difference, of course, here is that the asking price for Marcus May, I would imagine, is much, much lighter than the asking price was for Jamal Adams. So talk a little bit about this, but it doesn't seem from what you wrote and from what I can tell that May is on the trading block per se, but he could perhaps be had for the right price. Uh, Yeah, I think what you got to do is... Turn back the clock about, I don't know, uh, 15, 16 months uh, back to when Adam Gase first got here because Gase did want to trade May after he was hired. And then uh, he came around when other people in the organization uh, said, look, this guy is a young ascending player, a very productive player for us when healthy. Uh, you know, we can't trade him. So he was not traded after Gase got there. But Gase definitively wanted to move on from May, uh, based probably on his study uh, when he was with the Dolphins, uh, preparing for May, I guess he wasn't overly impressed. Regardless, uh, he had a productive season in his first year with Greg Williams, what, seven pass deflections, something like that. Played a different role, predominantly far off the line of scrimmage uh, than uh, he had in the past in which he was kind of moving in and out. But uh, there was interest, uh, you know, a fair amount of interest, frankly, across the league for the past year, uh, and after even Joe Douglas was hired, you know, th- there were teams that inquired about May during the year before last year's trade deadline, and the Jets valued him, and they kept him. And uh, even this past offseason, uh, there there was interest. Uh, there were discussions. So 
uh, maybe it goes back uh, to the Jamal Adams uh, uh, you know, scenario for over the last several months where you know, who made the first call? Uh, were the Jets only fielding calls? Did they hang up when people said we're interested in Marcus May? Or did they actually engage in trade conversations? And the answer to that is they actually engaged in trade conversations after people inquired. And that's what's clearly depicted in my story. Uh, and those conversations occurred uh, right up into the run-up of the draft. So these aren't things that happened, you know, four or five months ago, and then things were dead. I mean, this is stuff that's you know, fairly recent, extremely recent. And uh, what I thought was interesting is that Joe Douglas valued May enough uh, or didn't get the draft compensation that he was thought was adequate uh, to hold on to May. And then he effectively drafted Marcus May's replacement. I mean, let's let's be honest here. I don't know what kind of player Ashton Davis will be. And I'm not saying he will rise to the level of Marcus May or surpass the level of Marcus May. However, he provides a very similar skill set in that he is a free safety you know, in the truest sense. He can play slot corner. He'll obviously offer special teams value, but his speed uh, on the field is uh, really the main draw. So if you want to slot Ashton Davis in as your free safety for the foreseeable future, you can do that. Uh, So in effect, you know, we can dissect it a million different ways. But in effect, Ashton Davis is a Marcus May replacement so I think in hindsight, uh, if the offer was right, Joe Douglas would have traded Marcus May, but he did not know Ashton Davis was going to be available at 68. Uh, clearly, you know, their front office valued Ashton Davis a lot. Uh, what I thought was interesting, and I think I mentioned this last time we spoke, Scott, is that in the run-up to the draft, specifically the time period between the combine and the draft itself, during this whole virtual evaluation process, I don't believe that Greg Williams spoke to Ashton Davis. I'm pretty sure that that's what Davis said when we spoke to him after he was picked, which is interesting. It kind of tells you that this was a, a front office slash scouting department pick. Uh, but again, uh, Joe Douglas didn't have a crystal ball. He didn't know that Ashton Davis would be on his roster, uh, you know, two days into the draft. Uh, otherwise, you know, perhaps he would have been more aggressive in those trade talks with Marcus May. But now, and now that the draft is over. Uh, we're really in an interesting time because you don't typically see trades you know, a week, two weeks after the draft because teams have addressed their needs at particular positions. So if there were teams that were interested in Marcus May, I'm not saying that they wouldn't be interested right now, but perhaps they kind of want to see uh, what they have in the new guys that they brought in in the draft. Uh, and you really don't typically see teams uh, at this point in May – for this example, May of 2020, give up a 2021 draft pick for a player uh, in a trade, especially a player who's in the last year of his deal, you're probably going to want to extend Marcus May. So it's much more palatable to trade Marcus May at the 2020 trade deadline, Uh, depending on, of course, how May is playing, how Ashton Davis is playing, perhaps most importantly, how the Jets are playing, whether they're in or out of the, you know, the playoff hunt. Uh, there's a lot of different factors and variables that we just don't know right now, and we don't know how desperate a team will be, uh, how, how much a team will need uh, someone like Marcus May for a playoff run. So perhaps he could be traded uh, at the deadline. Uh, the other options are extending Marcus May. However, I, I don't know how good business sense it makes for Marcus May to take a cut-rate deal. If you're going to take $0.50 cents on the dollar from the Jets, or just play it out and you know, hit the free agent market and take your chances. I would think that the latter is a much sounder approach. Uh, and the final 
scenario for Joe Douglas and the Jets is to, to let Mark May walk in free agency. And if that happens, in all likelihood, you'll get a 2022 comp, comp pick. Uh, but that's 2022. I think if you're Joe Douglas, you you, you want to pick in 2021. But uh, if you're going to get, for example, a 2022 third-round comp pick, uh, perhaps that's the best you can do. Uh, you're not going to franchise Marcus May, so that's really off the table as well. So those are the options for, for Joe Douglas. But uh, there has been a fair amount of interest in May across the league. And uh, you know, I, I'll give Joe, credit, Joe Douglas credit in the sense that he did value May enough where he wasn't just going to give him away. But you know, it, it is something to, that bears watching as the season goes on. What are they going to do with this player? Because this idea that they drafted Ashton Davis to be a rotational safety for the foreseeable future is faulty. That's that's not why they drafted him. I mean, perhaps that's the role he'll play in 2020, but the, that's not the role that they see for him in 2021 and beyond. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Manish, as you said, the Jets are going to have to evaluate what they want to do with May, in large part based most likely on how they do in the 2020 season and where they're at at the trade deadline. And this plays into something that you wrote about in the Daily News. You called for a playoff mandate for the New York Jets this year and that if the Jets don't make the playoffs, that Adam Gase should be gone. I'm not one who really believes in playoff mandates, to be perfectly honest with you, for a variety of reasons. Number one, 
Injuries can pop up. If, say, Sam Darnold goes out for the year, it would be preposterous, for example, to have a playoff mandate for the team. But also, the way I look at it is you have to judge the coach or manager in baseball, football, hockey, basketball, based on how he uses the talent that he has and how he manages everybody. So the way I look at it is if the Jets are a team that just isn't good enough to beat the best teams on their schedule, and we know that they do have a very tough schedule because as we're going to get into in a bit, Manish, they are at least for now underdogs in every single game except one on their schedule. Now that may change because the draft is over, but those are the Vegas betting odds as of right now. I think what's most important here is that we see Sam Darnold take a major step up, that the offense looks a lot better, that we see a lot better adjustments, that we see better straight-up game planning and less dumb decisions, that we hear less stuff from the locker room along the lines of what we heard with Quincy Inunua and Kelechi Osimile and Jamal Adams last year, a lot less discord showing that he's a better manager and a better overall leader. If we see those things, then I think that you could make the case that Gase deserves to stay, even if the record is worse, only because I think the schedule is so much harder. And we talked about this, Manish. They were 7-9, and nine, but they had so much going in their favor to make them 7-9. and nine. For starters, as we know, the last week of the season, they were playing the Bills' third stringers. They had the easiest travel schedule. They had the easiest overall schedule in terms of strength of opponent. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if the team has a worse record this year, and that's why I wouldn't place a playoff mandate here. I want to see growth in all of the areas that I mentioned, and if I see significant growth in those areas, then I think that Adam Gase would have earned the right to stay. But I also think that if they go 8-8 eight and eight and we didn't see growth in any of those areas and there were fluky wins like the one against Buffalo last year or even the one against Pittsburgh with Duck Hodges at quarterback, that to me is a lot less impressive than, say, 5-11, 6-10 where we see a lot of these issues fixed, but the Jets just aren't good enough to win these games. And also, I want to see them competitive even against the better teams. Even if they're getting beat up, I want to see them at least giving these teams a fight. I'm talking about a team like, say, the Chiefs or the 49ers. So that's what I would be looking at. I wouldn't place a playoff mandate, but I do understand those that are frustrated and would want that playoff mandate. So talk a little bit about that because you had a lot to say in the Daily News on this subject. I just think that at some point in the franchise's recent history, you know, you have to exert some pressure on the people that are making key decisions. Now, you just hired Joe Douglas. So, uh, and you, I mean, you didn't even, you gave him one draft, right? So even though he's been here since, I guess, last May, last June, he's, he's had one draft. So, uh, you know, even the Johnsons, I, I don't think, would fire a general manager uh, after one draft. Now, they pulled the trigger early on John Nitzik after two years, but I, I don't believe that uh, it would make any sense to move on from Joe Douglas. You also have to factor in the realities of his situation, which is that he has guaranteed money and he is one of the top uh, you know, three or four highest paid general managers uh, in the NFL. So the Johnsons are not going to eat that money, nor should they give up on Joe Douglas uh, this quickly. That, that wouldn't make any sense. So uh, I, I am not pointing uh, you know, the finger at Joe Douglas uh, so soon. I don't think that makes any sense. Now, Adam Gase is not a rookie coach. This is not his second year as a head coach in the NFL. This uh, will be his 
fifth year as a head coach in the NFL, and not only in the NFL, but in the AFC East. So you've seen uh, a lot about what this guy is all about as a head coach. Uh, One year with the Jets, three years with the Dolphins, but he does have a four-year track record. Uh, At some point, you've got to exert some pressure on and hold people accountable. Otherwise, there's going to be consequences. Uh, Otherwise, why not just give – and I'm being facetious here, but why not just give – Adam Gase, a lifetime contract, and say, hey, look, if you if you continue to make improvement, and improvement is subjective, right? Uh, significant improvement is also subjective. What you know, what is significant to me may not be significant to you, vice versa. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, what we do know is that uh, these are the three longest playoff droughts in the National Football League. Number one, the Cleveland Browns, 17 years. Number two, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 12 years. Number three, the New York Jets at nine years. And then the next closest team uh, that has a playoff drought is four years. So there is a significant gap between those three teams, the Browns, the Bucks, and the Jets, and everybody else in the NFL in terms of when was the last time you actually made the playoffs. And now you factor in that in 2020, there's going to be an additional playoff team in each conference. So you have a seventh playoff team. So you have a greater opportunity now, uh, in in theory, a quote-unquote easier opportunity to make the playoff because you're going to have one more playoff team per conference. Uh, and then, on top of all of that, you factor in that the best player in the division, uh, you know, arguably the best player in the history of football, is no longer in your division, in Tom Brady. So that significantly weakens the team that has ruled the AFC East, the New England Patriots, in 2020. So you've got all these different factors at play here. You've got a great opportunity to make the playoffs. Uh, I think you need to have a playoff mandate. And I have been uh, adamant or had been adamant when Christopher Johnson took over for Woody uh, on a temporary basis that it would be foolish for uh, the the new – the new guy in charge to just come in and throw around, uh, you know, George Steinbrenner esque mandates and say, well, this has to happen. That has to happen. I thought that would be foolish, but now we're on year four with Christopher Johnson. He is 16 and 32 in the three years that he has been in charge. That is a worse record than any three year period that Woody Johnson had been in charge dating back two decades. So this is a, a, a low point you know, in the the Johnson ownership. This three-year run has been horrific, really, by every objective measure. So at some point, you do have to hold people accountable. And again, if Adam Gase were a rookie coach, you know, a coordinator who just got hired last year, and he's feeling his way out, trying to be the head coach of an NFL team, you would want to give him more rope. But this is year five now for him. That's the way I view it. Not year five for the, for the, with the Jets, but year five as a head coach. And look, we've, we've already said in this podcast alone, Scott, that he has a reputation of being stubborn and not being flexible and not changing. So if he continues down the same path that he has gone down and continues to operate in the same manner that he has operated under, then what is significantly going to change with the Jets, are we going to see that significant progress? Uh, you know, you had mentioned the schedule, and I know we're going to talk about the schedule in a bit. But I don't subscribe to this idea that the schedule uh, should be an excuse for not only Adam Gates but for the Jets. 
I, I, I do agree with you that it's a tougher schedule. I think that's really undeniable when you look at the opponents than it was a year ago. Uh, so in theory, they they could be quote unquote better. Uh, we we don't know that. That's just you know our our opinion of it. That it could be better and have fewer than seven wins. Uh, but uh, this is a results oriented business, and it's and it's unforgiving. It's cutthroat. I don't think we should feel sorry for any of these people. I have a lot of respect for a lot of these people, uh, players and coaches, but it's a results-oriented business, and you cannot say, uh, at least this is my belief, you cannot say that, well, it's going to be a tough schedule, so they're probably not going to make the playoffs. Uh, If that's the case, then why even bother playing? Because you've already defeated yourself by convincing yourself, not you particularly, but I'm saying in general, people who say, because it's a tough schedule, we shouldn't expect the playoffs. Well, there's teams that overcome quote-unquote tough schedules on paper and make the playoffs and even win playoff games and perhaps even win the Super Bowl. I'm not saying the Jets are at that level, but I don't think that we should use this excuse as a crutch and say, uh, well, it's going to be a tough schedule, so... You know, they're probably not going to make the playoffs. Because you can't have it both ways. Uh, and when I say you, I mean the team specifically. Players and coaches have been very encouraged by the 7-9 and nine season. Now, I've been steadfast in my belief that they were 6-9 and nine, and they won an additional uh, de facto preseason game in Week 17 because they, in effect, played the Bills' second and third stringers. Be that as it may, they finished 7-9 and nine in the record books. And... Players, uh, frankly, I think Sam Darnold, I could be wrong, but I I remember thinking that Sam Darnold said at some point last year that he thought that, or maybe even after the season, that he thought that they weren't that far away from being a playoff team. And you correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, maybe it wasn't Sam, but I kind of remember Sam saying something like that. But, uh, you know, if players and coaches are going to be that encouraged by their finish in their record, then you can't have it both ways. Because if you're a 7-9 team, then you are on the cusp of making the postseason. And then the following season, your expectation uh, should be the playoffs. And the fans' expectation should be making the playoffs. I hear you, Manish, but you got to be consistent in both ways. Because if you're saying the 7-9 and nine record was a mirage, and I agree with that, then you can't turn around and then say, well, this team should be better than that 7-9 and nine record this year if you don't think they were really as good as the 7-9 and nine record last year. My thing with this is really more than anything... I just don't believe in penalizing Gase for sins of the past that have nothing to do with what's going on now. In other words, it's not Adam Gase's fault that the previous eight years before he got here, the Jets didn't make the playoffs. I can't put that on him. I'm certainly no Adam Gase fan. Everybody listening to this knows that, and you do too. I do agree with you that he has some interesting offensive concepts, but that's just not enough as a head coach. And all the worries that I had when he was hired manifested themselves last year. That said, Manish, I think that if you look at what he did in Miami, it's not fair to really let that carry over here to New York because fresh start, fresh slate. What I want to see is that he's not that guy that he was in Miami, that he's not the guy that he was last year. If I see that, and like I said, significant progress. If Sam Darnold takes a major leap this year, if I don't have to sit at home or in the stadium and wonder to myself, why is Le'Veon Bell not being used the way that he should? Why is he not producing? 
if I don't hear stuff about rumblings in the locker room or Gase losing players, if I don't hear about all kinds of discord, if I don't see boneheaded decisions consistently, if I see actually good adjustments, then what Adam Gase is showing you is that he has learned and he has grown. And so that, to me, is far more important in terms of the long run than whether or not the Jets make the playoffs with a roster that I honestly don't think is good enough to make the playoffs. Now, you said if you're not going to strive to make the playoffs, Playoffs, then what's the point? I agree. They should absolutely strive to make the playoffs, but there's a difference between striving for something and expecting it. And I think part of the problem is last year, people didn't harp enough on not only how easy the schedule was, because that was talked about, but how easy the road travel was. This year, they've got to go to Seattle. They've got to go to LA twice. They've got to go to Arrowhead. This is really, really difficult. And that doesn't mean that they can't overcome it and win some of these games. Look, if they make the playoffs, that would be absolutely awesome. But like I said, to me, I want to see that Gase has learned from his past mistakes. If he can show me that he did that and I see significant progress along the lines of what I was just talking about, then I think it's only fair that he be brought back for a third season. But he's got a long way to go, Manish, in showing us that he's learned and that he's progressed because we have seen no signs of him being willing to do that. And so that's why he's really going to have to make changes. Now, history tells you that guys like him don't typically make drastic changes, but he's going to be here, so let's see what he does. If he makes those changes for the better, then we can talk about whether or not he should stay, I think, regardless of whether or not the Jets make the playoffs. And I wanted to go over the schedule with you here, Manish. The actual order of the games and the dates of the games will be announced, but we do know who the Jets are playing, and we know which games are home games and away games. The Jets, as of right now, and this was before the draft, so I'd like to see new odds that were added after the draft, but as of the most recent odds, the Jets are favored only once, and that's against the Dolphins. They are minus four. So let's go through this. Here are their home games. They play the Bills, the Dolphins, the Patriots, the Broncos, the Raiders, and the Cardinals. Out of those games, I'm not saying there aren't winnable ones aside from the Dolphins, but man, that's tough. The Raiders are probably the most winnable of that batch. The Jets, as of now, are one-point underdogs. I think that once the draft gets factored in, there's a good chance that the Jets actually end up being favorites. But the Broncos improved significantly. They added a lot to their offense. We just talked about Lloyd Cushenberry before, but they also got K.J. Hamler from Penn State and Jerry Judy from Alabama to help Drew Locke out. You also have the Cardinals. We know what they did. DeAndre Hopkins, Isaiah Simmons, they made a lot of excellent moves. Josh Jones to help protect Kyler Murray. The Patriots, I know that Tom Brady's gone, but let's be real, they still have an absolutely elite defense. A defense, by the way, that made Sam Darnold see ghosts last year. So that's a team that is obviously going to be favored. We'll see what they do at quarterback, but right now it looks like Jared Stidham. And then from there, you've got the Bills, who we know may have the best overall roster in the division. So I'm not saying that the Jets can't win a few of these games. I'd favor them over the Dolphins, even though the Dolphins have improved. And you could make a strong case about the Raiders, but they're probably going to be underdogs in the rest of those games. I should add also that the 49ers come in and the Browns. Both of those teams have significantly better rosters, especially the 49ers, who are just in the Super Bowl. 
is it really fair to expect the Jets to win the majority of those games, especially when most likely they're going to be underdogs in six of the eight? That's where I come down on this. And then you go and you take a look at the road travel. Like I said, they're on the road against the Seahawks. That one is a very difficult game that they're going to be heavy underdogs in. The Bills, that's also a game where they should be pretty big underdogs. The Colts, okay, that one might be one that you could steal. But then again, they are definitely going to be underdogs there. The Chargers, that's a much improved roster. Now they'll be playing more than likely a rookie quarterback. So maybe they steal that. But that's brutal travel all the way to L.A. The Dolphins on the road, that should be winnable. The Patriots on the road, that's extremely difficult, no matter who the quarterback is, especially considering how good that defense is. And we'll see when that game ends up happening in terms of time of year. But if it's wintertime, it's going to be even worse because of that defense. Going on the road to play the Rams, the Rams have a much better roster than the Jets. And again, traveling all the way to L.A. and then the Chiefs. I shouldn't really even have to say anything about that one, Manish. We know they are probably going to be double-digit underdogs against the Chiefs. So I'm just saying, if you look at this realistically, there aren't that many wins that jump out at you here. They could overachieve, and that would be awesome. But I don't think that it's fair to look at this schedule, look at the travel, and say, well, they better win nine or more games, get into the playoffs, or else Gase is out of here. I think the much better metric for determining whether Gase is the right coach going forward is improvement in the areas that I talked about and showing that he's learned from his past mistakes. Now, again, odds are he probably won't do that. And if he doesn't, then we can reevaluate whether or not he should go. If he doesn't improve in those areas, I would be all on board with getting rid of him. In fact, I would have been fine with getting rid of him after year one. I just think that the playoff mandate is the wrong formula for it. And on top of it, like we said, what if you make this playoff mandate and then Sam Darnold goes out for the year? I don't care what anybody says. It's not fair to have a playoff mandate on a backup quarterback. So that's kind of how I look at things or even other major injuries. If you have a bunch of them, it's really not fair to have a playoff mandate there. So I just don't think that a playoff mandate is the best way to judge the job that Adam Gase has done. But I do understand the frustration. And like you said, it's been a long time. And I do agree that Christopher Johnson really needs to take a hard look in the mirror. I understand that 2017 was supposed to be a bit of a rebuilding year, his first year here. But at the same time, many of the major decisions that he's made have not paid dividends yet. And that's going to have to change if the Jets are going to be successful. And it's going to have to change for Woody when he comes back because... Even Woody, before he left, we know that they had a long period where they didn't have any winning seasons until 2015. That was the only one that they had, and that season did not result in a playoff berth. So whether it's Woody Johnson or Christopher Johnson, the Jets have to show that they're heading in the right direction. I think they can do that without necessarily making the playoffs this year, but a lot of people, including you, don't, and I get it. I completely get it. I just disagree. Look, I think everybody would uh, give uh, Adam Gase a pass if Sam Darnold, uh, God forbid, suffered a serious injury. So if you give a playoff mandate and then your starting quarterback gets hurt uh, and misses a significant portion of the season, then I don't think fans would hold Christopher Johnson to that playoff mandate unless things completely fell off the you know, the rails after Darnold was hurt and they were losing every game by 30 points. Like we saw last year when Darnold was out, they were not competitive. But, uh, you know, I think there's built-in flexibility there uh, it, when significant injuries happen for the Jets. What's a significant injury? I think Sam Darnold, uh, Jamal Adams, uh, you know, that's probably it. Uh, you know, other guys can get hurt, but, you know, they're replaceable or replaceable enough. But, 
but yeah, I, I, I don't think that uh, Adam Gay should be penalized if you know something like that happened. Uh, but I, look, I think two years for a guy who's been a head coach five years in the division, five consecutive years in the division, is enough of a sample size if they don't uh, significantly improve. Like you said, they, they, look, they were the worst team in the worst offense in the NFL last year. Uh, 32nd overall. And even when Sam Darnold played, they were uh, in, in the bottom handful of offenses last year. So they were they were not a good offense last year. So you want them, at the very least, to be middle of the pack. I think that's a fair expectation, mm-hmm. at the very least. But uh, again, there's so many unknowns and, and variables. So discussing what is significant, what isn't, what's a big leap for Darnold, what isn't. You know, we could have a, a number of statistics rolled out for Darnold and, and pick and choose and say, well, is that good enough? Is this good enough? Uh, you know, I just think at some point you do have to hold the people accountable. Uh, you're not really being fair to your fan base. Uh, you know, there's a segment of the fan base that is going to say, hey, let's just kind of wait and see what happens and evaluate after the season. But then even those fans will disagree on what's enough progress uh, or what's not enough progress. So it, to me, it's like, you know, you got a guy – who's coaching for the fifth consecutive year uh, in the AFC East. Uh, his offenses, by and large, for the previous four years have not been particularly good. His offense last year was terrible. He was hired specifically to get the best out of the offense and, more specifically, the best out of the young quarterback. The young quarterback made some marginal strides forward. I think those strides were inevitable, uh, given more snaps, more experience, and that's why I think he'll continue uh, to move in the right direction this year. The question becomes, how much better is he getting uh, under Adam Gase? How much better will he become this year under Adam Gase? Uh, you know, we'll find out <laughs> in a few months. <laughs> but uh, but I do want to get into the schedule, Scott. You you talked about the, the road and home splits. Before we get into that, though, Manish, I do want to make one point again. I don't think it's necessarily fair to talk about how Adam Gase has been a head coach for five years in the division because when he was with the Dolphins, he had a completely different roster. Everything was different. Now that he's with the Jets, you have to judge him based on the job that he does here. And I think that, again, this comes down to if he shows that he's learned from his past failures. Now, if he does the same stuff again that he did in year one here and in the three years with the Dolphins, then you can look back at the Dolphins' tenure and say, well, he's been a coach this many years, nothing's changed, he's still operating the exact same way, and then I understand putting that on him. But if we're talking about a playoff mandate, I don't think that it's fair to judge what he does with this group of players as opposed to completely different group of players for three seasons in Miami, two very different situations. And also the other thing that I think we have to keep in mind is that you keep talking about how somebody has to be held accountable for the fact that the Jets haven't made the playoffs for this period of time. But Gase was only here for one year. It's not fair to hang that on his neck. That goes at the feet of people like John Idzik, Todd Bowles, Mike McCagnin, Mike Tannenbaum, Rex Ryan, so on and so forth down the line, just as much, if not more, than Adam Gase in terms of what the Jets have done over the past decade. So I really don't think it's fair to hold him accountable specifically for all the failures of those years that he wasn't even here. But as far as the schedule, Manish, I want you to talk about this because I think you will agree that most of those games, the Jets are going to be underdogs. So it is a little bit tough to demand that he win the majority of those games to make the playoffs, isn't it? Well, look, let me just say one thing, and then we can just move on from uh, the whole playoff mandate. Uh, 
there's a way when coaches are hired, they bring their quote-unquote program in, they bring their people in, uh, coaches, people that they uh, surround themselves with. Uh, that, by and large, has not changed on the offensive side. Obviously, the defense is different because Adam Gase did not hire Greg Williams. Greg Williams, uh, in effect, was appointed to Adam Gase because nobody wanted to coach uh, with Adam Gase. And uh, Vance Joseph was the guy that Adam Gase wanted. Vance Joseph was the defensive coordinator for the Miami Dolphins uh, in the first year that he worked with Adam Gase. Those guys went to the playoffs. Vance Joseph did not want to come to the Jets unless he had no other options, and that's why Vance Joseph went to Arizona. If Vance Joseph wanted to work with Adam Gase, he would have gone and been the defensive coordinator for the New York Jets. However, he did not want to work with Adam Gase unless he had no other options to be a defensive coordinator. He found an option in Arizona, and he took it. Uh, There are some traits, Scott, that are transferable from the Miami Dolphins to the Jets. How you operate, how you conduct yourself as a leader, uh, how you act, frankly, when things aren't going right. Right, and that's what I'm saying. If he continues down that path, then absolutely strong argument to remove him. I'm just saying that because he's already going to be here, he has the opportunity to show us that he can make positive changes. Absolutely. I I don't... I'm not advocating that there's a coaching change midseason unless obviously something off the field happens. Uh, yeah, he absolutely deserves an opportunity to have the full season to, to, to prove that uh, he's made the proper adjustments. We're not going to know, uh, frankly, and I know that fans will only know that through reporting because that's not something that's going to be uh, you know, out there publicly every day. It's not as if uh, uh, Adam Gase is going to share the inner workings of the New York Jets during the season. So. You know, we'll find out over the course of the 17 weeks, assuming that there is a 17-week season, uh, about uh, how he does. But, Scott, I think we should probably get more into the schedule later because there is some breaking news. The Jets have agreed to a one-year deal with soon-to-be 37-year-old Frank Gore. What do you think of that, Scott? I'm not sure I understand it. I thought they were trying to get younger and quicker. <laughs> and I don't know what this is about. I guess this does sort of dispel the notion that Frank Gore didn't like Adam Gase. I don't know, but other than that, I'm not really sure what this is about. Is he taking Bilal Pal's spot? Is this a hedge in case they find somebody who wants to take Bell in a trade, which I find highly unlikely? What's going on here, Manish? Because I saw this pop up as you were saying it, and I can't make any sense of it. Well, look, I can tell you that Adam Gase has loved Frank Gore for a long time, and they worked together for one season in 2018, and uh, I remember talking to Gase back then, and he would just rave about uh, his work ethic. He would rave about his durability, and if you remember Scott early in Frank Gore's career, there were actually some durability questions because he was getting nicked up, and and then he just went on this incredible tear over the past decade or so in which you know, he's so reliable, uh, typically stays healthy, but uh, but Gase loved him. And I, he would often say that he felt that Gore was built differently than most people. And I guess if, look, you're going to enter your 16th NFL season as a running back, you got to be built differently because the shelf life for running backs is, uh, what, maybe three, four years. Uh, you know, for the premium guys, maybe seven or eight years. So he has exceeded that by leaps and bounds. Uh, it's a curious uh, decision, though. Uh, I know everything that Frank Gore brings to the table. He's a model professional, incredible work ethic, uh, again, reliable guy in the locker room, uh, a solid veteran presence. I understand all of that. 
However, from a production standpoint, he is coming off career lows in yards last year in Buffalo, 599, and perhaps most importantly, yards per carry, 3.6. The guy's played 15 years in the NFL. It's his worst yards per carry and stands to reason because he's he's, uh, obviously up there in age. So uh, I think what this tells you, and you can give me your interpretation, but what this certainly tells me is that uh, this offense is not going to be built around uh, Le'Veon Bell. It's not going to be a Le'Veon Bell-centric offense. Uh, Le'Veon Bell's not going to get a heavy workload. Uh, you're going to see uh, Frank Gore in there. Uh, you know, it, It's not going to be a 50-50 split, I wouldn't think. But uh, if you look at how Gase used Gore in 2018 with the Dolphins, he had 156 carries in 14 games. Uh, there was a lot of discussion down there at the time why there was a backfield by committee approach with Gore and Kenyon Drake when Drake had such a solid end to the 2017 season. The year before, people assumed that the young, dynamic running back would be the feature back in 2018, and that never came to fruition. And then ultimately, Brian Flores traded uh, Kenyon Drake to Arizona last year, and we saw flashes of terrific play and now Kenyon Drake is going to be uh, the feature back in Arizona. So, uh, I, you know, I think that uh, there's going to be a committee. I think that's kind of the direction that we've been headed all along. Uh, again, not necessarily a 50-50 split because you've also got LaMichael Pirine, who the Jets uh, invested in in this draft recently, who's going to be in the mix to a certain degree. But Frank Gore is not going to be an afterthought. He's not going to be a guy who's collecting dust on the sideline. He's going to get – valuable playing time and I think again that just speaks to what we have been discussing for uh, over a year now a year and a half really that uh, Adam Gaze never wanted Le'Veon Bell he wants a running back by committee approach and uh, you know, bringing in a trusted veteran in Frank Gore I think uh, pretty cin- pretty much cinches that no question about it that this tells you that he's not planning to build the offense around Le'Veon Bell. I would imagine it'll be Bell, Gore, and P. Ryan, as you said, by committee the way that Gase typically likes to do it. But what I'm confused about is why you would go out and get a guy who's 37 years old, all due respect to Frank Gore, who, as you said, has been a model citizen and a hell of a player. In fact, you could make a case that he's Hall of Fame worthy. If nothing else, he's at least borderline just based on the number of excellent years he had. But to bring him in at this point makes no sense to me. Why not get a faster young runner, which is really what you need because P. Ryan's not really that fast. He's more of that physical inside guy who can make some plays in the passing game. We know that Le'Veon Bell's not lightning fast. He's quick and he's a guy that's really good at finding holes and being patient and doing the Curtis Martin routine. But they don't have anybody that's really a home run threat in terms of running back. That would have made a lot more sense to me if they were going to go out and get a third guy. But to make it Frank Gore just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And like you said, this just strikes me as Adam Gase wanting to do things his way again. In fact, earlier in the show, Manish, we talked all about how Adam Gase needs to make better use of Le'Veon Bell. And that was going to be one of the keys to the Jets' success in 2020. But clearly he doesn't feel that way. Yeah, I think you know, the actions speak a lot louder than words, right? Uh, I agree with you completely. They talked all off season about adding team speed, uh, and that should not have been just uh, you know relegated to the wide receiver position, uh, running back as well. And everybody knows that Le'Veon Bell's not a burner. You know, he's very great uh, change of direction, quickness, things of that nature. And P. Ryan's not a burner as well. So you're right. You know, adding a a soon-to-be 37-year-old 
running back for all the good qualities uh, that that uh, he brings to the table in terms of veteran presence and leadership and work ethic. Uh, I think it's fair to say, and I I don't think that Adam Gase or uh, Frank Gore would debate this. Uh, that this this is a, a player in the twilight of his career. I think it's fair to say that the 16th season will be the final season for Frank Gore. I don't quite understand it, other than just to bring in an Adam Gase guy. You had touched on a minute ago about, you know, there was there were reports uh, back at when when things were going uh, sideways with Gase in Miami that players did not uh, particularly like Gase. That was all true. However, Frank Gore was not really one of those guys, uh, you know, that did not like Gase. In fact, I remember talking to some people. Uh, before the Jets hired Gase, uh, in my you know quick uh, review and evaluation of the hire, and I was told that Frank Gore did have a good relationship with Gase, and again publicly, Gase has repeatedly praised uh, Gore. So I think those guys were fine; those guys are good. But just from a football perspective, I'm with you. Uh, you know, if you're going to add another piece to that backfield puzzle, you bring a home run hitter, you bring someone with blazing speed somebody who can change the dynamic in that respect, not uh, a 37-year-old uh, running back who's going to run between the tackles. I mean, you've got Le'Veon Bell. I, I just, you know, I, it's amazing. You know, we spent a, a year and a half discussing why Bell wasn't deployed correctly, discussing that Gase didn't, never wanted Bell in the first place, and Gase denied it uh, both publicly and privately. Uh, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding. There is really no reason to add Frank Gore to this team right now uh, other than to bring in a guy that you believe is, uh, you know, one of your guys. It's In some respects, to be honest with you, it's like the Jets trading for Demarius Thomas last year. That was one of Adam Gase's guys in Denver, a guy who bought into Gase's scheme and his system and uh, wanted to spread the Adam Gase message inside the locker room. Perhaps that is one of the factors why Frank Gore is uh, now a Jet. Uh, you know, I can't say that for certain this quickly, but uh, from a football perspective, when you have Le'Veon Bell and you just drafted uh, a young running back, uh, I, I don't quite understand you know, where Frank Gore fits into this puzzle unless you're going to try to marginalize Le'Veon Bell. And uh, you know, no matter what Adam Gase says moving forward, I think that this signing is a clear indication that some of those carries and some of those touches intended for Le'Veon Bell will now go to Frank Gore. If we want to look on the bright side of this, as you said, he is a fit in the Adam Gase system, knows Gase well, so that's good. He's a great locker room guy, one of the most respected players in the NFL. That's good as well. But as far as the actual fit on the football field, he's going to take carries away from Le'Veon Bell. He's probably going to take carries away from Michael Pirine too. And I'm not saying that Pirine should have gotten a million carries, but he is the younger back. You would think that you'd want him and his fresh legs getting some carries. Now he'll probably get fewer carries. If you're going to get a third running back, as you said, should have been a younger, speedier guy. That's why I thought that Anthony McFarlane made a lot of sense in the draft or somebody along those lines, or even getting somebody who is a free agent who has that kind of speed. I just don't really see the value here. Hopefully, Adam Gase has a plan that truly is genius that we're not seeing right now because signing a 37-year-old running back who, as you said, Manish, is in the twilight of his career to take carries away from the guy you just drafted and, more importantly, the $15 million a year running back that you signed a year ago just strikes me as a very 
bizarre decision. I know that Gase likes the running back by committee, but sometimes, as we said earlier in the show, you've got to adapt to what you have, and this seems to be the exact opposite of that. Fingers crossed that we end up being wrong, and this turns out to be a great move. If nothing else, the positive is maybe he will have a good impact on the younger players in the locker room, and maybe he can almost be a sort of coach on the field at points, but still a perplexing move in a lot of ways, especially considering what we all felt that the Jets needed needed still at running back. Manish Mehta covering the New York Jets for the Daily News. Thanks so much for coming on as always. Really appreciate it. I'm sure you got plenty of stuff coming once the schedule comes out, but you're going to do a deep dive into Mr. Gore too, aren't you? <laughs> uh, I think uh, everybody knows that Frank Gore is one of the you know freakiest athletes uh, in this generation. I, I still can't believe that a running back lasted 16 years in the NFL. He's third in the NFL in rushing behind Emmett Smith and Walter Payton. Uh, I do think he will uh, be a Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, the longevity, I think, puts him over the top. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it'll be an interesting dynamic between Le'Veon Bell and Frank Gore when the games begin, for sure. Go ahead and follow Manish on Twitter at MMetaNYDN and read his work in the New York Daily News. If you haven't had a chance to give us a five-star review yet on iTunes, if you could do that for us, we'd greatly appreciate it. It doesn't take you much time. It doesn't cost you any money, but it goes a long way to help us out. Easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. So if you could do that for us, we would be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.